And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Peter Hammond, founder and director of Frontline Fellowship. And Peter, it's an honor once again to have you with us today. It's a great joy to be with you. Thank you so very much for this opportunity. The other day you sent out an email uh, titled, Serving the Persecuted. Um, I sometimes lose sight of the persecuted church, and it's huge. And um, we need to be reminded of them, uh, of our fellow brethren, and to think about them, to pray for them. And um, I I would like you to talk about that a little bit today. And uh, we know that tomorrow, November the 6th, is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. So maybe you can get us started. Peter Hammond. Yes, thank you. It's been a privilege. Uh, for 40 years, I've had the privilege of serving persecuted Christians in restricted access areas. That's included Mozambique and Angola, Rwanda and in Burundi, <clears throat> the Congo and Zimbabwe, northern Nigeria, Sudan. So in Romania and Poland, Czechoslovakia, Albania, back in the 1980s during the Cold War. And during this time, I've endured aerial bombardments and ambushes, artillery and rocket barrages, and I've been arrested and imprisoned for missionary work. So that's helped me to understand a little bit better our persecuted brethren. Of course, what I've gone through is nothing compared to what people like Richard Wormbrandt have endured. And the people that I've ministered amongst have had a lot to teach us. But I remember my first night in a prison cell uh, in a communist country. I I thought of what Richard Wormbrandt had written. I thought, you know, an ounce of experience is worth a ton of theory. And mm. uh, it meant so much for me to know that other brethren had been in these situations and worse and had endured and that God's grace had been sufficient for them and that I shouldn't panic and uh, lose my mind uh, because I'd lost my freedom and I was at the hands of people who um, had torture up their sleeve amongst other ways of making you talk. And um, it's incredible the peace that passes all understanding that flooded my heart and soul in some of the most squalid, disgusting conditions one can imagine uh, in a communist prison. And um, I have must say some of the most extraordinary experiences in my life, spiritually speaking, I'd say the highlights of my worship in my life has been in prison, sick in hospital, <laughs> under mm. fire, in some of the worst situations. You look back and you think, I wouldn't have wanted it, but afterwards, looking back, I wouldn't have wanted to be without it because <laughs> the Lord was so much closer. And the, the it's it's impossible to explain how the, God does not give you the grace before you need it, but he does give you the grace yes. when you need it. Yes, amen. You know, I, I just thought of something. I hope you don't mind if I ask, and that is— um, you were in the military, too, prior to becoming, I guess, prior to becoming a missionary. Um, did God use that training uh, for what was to come also? Yes. Actually, I was a missionary, at least as a missionary in training, before I went to the Army, too. Okay. And I would say, uh, at the first missionary who came past my church, Francis Grimm of Hospital Christian Fellowship, I ran forward and I joined his mission. I had the wonderful privilege of getting at least six months missionary training under a most phenomenal uh, missionary mentor. In fact, Francis Grimm planted hospital Christian fellowships in 100 countries, including behind the Iron Curtain. And mm. uh, uh, being mentored by a man like that, that helped me in my time in the military. So my missionary experience helped my military, and my military helped my missionary <laughs> experience. Because when I went into the Army, 
I must say, I went in with a kind of negative attitude because all my life I'd want to be a soldier. Uh, my father, my grandfather, or going all the way back, my brother, all been in the military, and I think Hammonds had been uniform going back a century. So yeah. you know, we were at the Battle of Waterloo and, and all the rest, Battle of Hastings, the whole lot. So, um, But when I got converted, I lost all interest in it. All I wanted to do was be in missions. Yes. And so when my military call-up came on, I was actually quite negative, and I thought, I don't want to waste two years of my life in the Army. I want to <laughs> go on missions. And I went in with a kind of negative attitude. And then in the first few days, the Lord worked me up to the fact, is this not a mission field? Here you are surrounded. There you go. <laughs> people who evidently don't know the Lord. I mean, there's a lot of people from what's coming out of their mouth plainly that don't know the Lord and they don't fear God. Is this not a mission field? And so at the first chaplain service, the first Sunday, I felt convicted to ask the chaplain if I could speak afterwards now. That was probably one of the most terrifying things in my life, standing up one of eight, <laughs> one of 500 young men, maybe it was 600 in that massive hall, and all dressed in the same brown uniform, no hair, you know, completely shaven, so oh, yeah. on I stand up there, and I turned and I faced the men, and I said, I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart, and I want to honor him in my next few years here. If anyone Amen. else feels the same, please see me afterwards. Let's start a Bible study and fellowship. And I sat down. That's about all I said. But it was my heart was thumping. It was terrifying. It was intimidating. But I made the stand that God had called me to make. And now that grew a Bible study and prayer fellowship that met every night for the next two years. Of course, sometimes we were marching through the night in the field and weren't able to. But but every night we were in our military base, we were whole well, um, tents and so on. We were organizing Bible study and prayer fellowship. Sometimes all night prayer meetings. And the vision just grew of taking the gospel into the war zones and even to the enemy and the people caught in the crossfire and the persecuted church, communist Angola and Mozambique. And as we prayed the world of Patrick Johnson and praying through the, the, the terrible situation in Mozambique and Angola where the Bible was banned and where Christians were persecuted and, and God laid the vision. So I must say my time in hospital Christian fellowship prepared me to be able to stand firm for Christ in the military, which is an intimidating thing to do. Mm. You know, you're surrounded by very harsh, bullying type of people. To make a stand for Christ and paint a target on yourself um, <laughs> was intimidating. But but then my military experience prepared me for my later missionary work. So, yes, every stage of my life I can see how God used it to purge and purify and prepare me and to make me more prayerful and to get me to be willing to step out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Uh, in your recent letter, um, there's one section titled Angola's Agony. And I read that and I thought, oh, oh, this is, this is heartbreaking. Can you describe to our listeners what you wrote there under yes. Angola's Agony? Well, of course, Angola was the communist country on the border of southwest Africa. And that was where the South African army was to protect the Avambo and Kavango tribesmen from Swapo terrorists were coming over, and there were Cubans and Angolans. Just basically, um, it was a war being waged by the Soviet Union against South Africa, but they were using surrogates. They were using the Cubans and Angolans. Uh -huh. Well, on numerous occasions, um, we heard from people because we'd go in, we'd speak to people, and I'd I'd ask the people, "Is your church?" And they'd point to burnt out areas. That was the church. The communists burnt it down. Where's your pastor? Oh, the communist shot him. Oh. And uh, what can we do to help you? Biblia. Biblia. I mean, you see starving, hungry, thin, sometimes wounded Bibles. Uh -huh. And when we brought Bibles out, we gave them Bibles in their own language. People cried, laughed, danced, hugged us, kissed us both cheeks, fell on their knees, lifted up their arms, cried out. 
the greatest gift I ever, could ever ask for. Uh, the word of God, my own language. And then we started to hear the stories of how communist troops, many times communists, came into their church. Uh, one place, Aurelio uh, uh, Sanji was the pastor, and the, the church uh, was um, in Kowanda Kabunga province. And uh, in they came, and they drove three cattle into the church, and they said, uh, you worship three gods, well, here they are. And they chopped the heads of the cattle and put them on the altar and said, bow down, worship well, people objected the pastor really Sanji stood up and rebuked them and he was shut down uh, oh. this is Chalisa Evangelical Church and uh, many of the deacons and elders stood up they were machine gunned the people fled shut. 150 people died in and around the church that day the rest Just escaped like in the bush and some told us about it well I've seen that church and I've rebuilt and rededicate the Lord and 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 full but uh, we've heard many testimonies like this on occasions Communist troops came in and put an AK-47 on the altar and said, this has power of life and death. Come, bow down uh, and worship this. Another time came in and they said uh, to the people, you can all leave one by one. But first, spit on the Bible. They took the Bible from the pulpit, threw it at the door, opened. They said, walk past, spit on the Bible, and you can go free. You'll live. But if you don't spit, we will kill you. Oh, my. And communist troops burst into a church and said, you Christians, you say you worship the Lamb. Well, we have a Lamb. And they taunted the worshippers, and they started to pour the blood of the lamb. They chopped the lamb's head off with a machete, walked around pouring blood over people, smearing on their faces, laughing. Great fun. They dragged people out of their seats. Uh, they weren't exactly seats. They were more like um, not even a pew, just a, a branch uh, sure. stuck on some poles that people could balance on. Forced them in front of the altar. They started to smear blood over them, and they said, You worship the lamb. The blood of the lamb release you from all sin. And then they said, You've committed idolatry. God can never forgive you. You're not going to go to heaven. You're going to come and burn in hell with us for eternity. And they left. They didn't actually hurt anyone that day. They just came to me. Wow. Well, I had a supper once with a whole lot of people who used to be communist terrorists. Uh, they had been involved in Swapper, eight of them. It was quite an experience having a supper with people <laughs> who used to be communist enemies. But they'd all fallen afoul one way or the other of the authorities, and they'd end up in a concentration camp in Angola. They'd been tortured. And that actually, um, they were in a bit of a cesspool, a pit, um, which had barbed wire and, and thorn bushes over the top. And it was at the lowest point in the camps that all the sewage and muck of the whole place flowed in there. So they were literally living in, in, in a sewage pit. And hmm. they would be brought out occasionally to be whipped in different ways. And uh, one of them just cried out. They would explain this to me over supper. One of them cried out at one point, why don't you just kill us yeah. and get it over with? And the response of the communist concentration camp guards, actually Cuban this occasion, was most enlightening. Oh, no. No, we don't want to kill you. We don't want to kill you and send you to heaven to be with God. No, we want you to curse Christ and come to hell with us for all eternity. Uh, wow. That gives you an insight. That's what persecution is all about. It's not about killing Christians. That, there's no victory for Satan and sending a Christian to be with his Lord in heaven. Jesus no. is the resurrection and the life. There's no victory in burning a church. Churches are not buildings. Church people yes. regenerated by the Holy Spirit, whose names are written, lambs of life. No, the aim of persecution is not to kill Christians. It's actually to intimidate Christians into being quiet, into giving in, to terrify us, into being cowards, to stop us evangelizing. Because if the devil cannot stop us being converted, he at least wants to divert or 
distract us. So if you're not effective in fulfilling the Great Commission and winning souls to Christ. So as long as you refuse to be intimidated into silence and neutrality and compromise, if you continue to evangelize and stand for Christ, then the persecution fails. <laughs> now, um, today we're talking with Dr. Peter Hammond, and he heads up um, Frontline Mission in South Africa. He's been on before with us. Uh, there was a, a lady that you wrote about in your article, the wife of Romanian pastor Richard Wormbrand. Can you describe that briefly? Oh, yes. In fact, my wife, Lenora, uh, grew up with the Wormbrands being close family friends. Her father was a, a smuggler and ministry uh, leader going throughout Eastern Europe. Bill Bathman was good friends with the Wormbrands, and Lenora would often have Richard and Sabrina Wormbrand sitting across the table from her at their home in Gruskemein in Austria. And, uh, well, uh, there's some lovely stories. Sabrina Wormbrand testified that before she went to prison, she was very poor. But once she went to prison, she became very rich. <laughs> and this is because she was poor in the things of this world, but she was rich in the things of God. So when she came to prison, she had the only currency that was of any value in prison, which is the Word of God. She had memorized much of the Word of God. Oh, she was poor in the things of the world, but she was rich in the Scriptures. And so when she came to prison, she was able to make many people rich with what she had memorized of the Scripture in her heart and mind. Well, after years in the slave labor, she, she was sent to five years slave labor work, uh, building canals and pulling uh, like, like a mule uh, with a rope, pulling the uh, barges down the as a slave of oh the my. communist. So after five years, and do you know what a crime was? She was the wife of a pastor. Richard Wilbrandt was a Lutheran minister. Uh, uh. So five years in a concentration camp for that. Well, when she was finally released, uh, a man came to her claiming to have been in prison with her husband and having a message from him to share with their congregation, which, of course, was illegal and underground. So Sabina, knowing how the communist state sought to infiltrate congregations by infiltrating spies or by blackmailing some member into being informers, Sabina was naturally cautious, so she said, please, before we go any further, won't you just lead us in prayer? <laughs> and she bowed her head, and there was an awkward silence. And the man who claimed to have a message from her husband, stuttered and stammered. And Sabrina Wombrandt looked up straight in his eyes and said, Now then, aren't you ashamed of yourself? Yeah. Wouldn't you like me to explain how you become a real Christian? <laughs> That's beautiful. Uh, God bless this woman. And uh, I thought it was fascinating that she grew up very poor, and once she went to prison, she became very rich. You don't you don't often hear that, and yet it's true. And and I appreciated that testimony. Um, today we're talking about the persecuted church, and um, there's a lot of such accounts, aren't there, in this world, Peter? And um, yet we believe that God is uh, building his church. He's building his kingdom. He's building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. How do we sort that um, with stories like this? Well, well, in fact, that's got a wonderful epilogue because when the Christmas revolution occurred in 1989, and what a joy, um, my wife and I uh, just got married early in 1989 and on honeymoon gone with my father-in-law smuggling Bibles into Eastern Europe with uh, Lenora, and what, what a privilege that was, meeting many of these great heroes of the faith. And, uh, uh, well, later that year, uh, we saw 
the whole uh, communist regime topple. I mean, one off the other, it was like dominoes from East uh, Berlin, the Berlin Wall coming down, yes. and Czechoslovakia, Hungary, one off the other, Bulgaria, Albania, change after change. And uh, and the last was on Christmas Day, Ceausescu, the dictator of Romania, was overthrown by his own army and shot on Christmas Day, and uh, the people celebrating Dracula's dead on Christmas Day, the <laughs> church bells were sing ringing for the first time in 44 years. Well, uh, Richard Vaughan came back from exile, and he purchased the very building where he was imprisoned. Oh, my. And he bought up the, he brought up the Securitatis uh, printing press that they used to print communist propaganda on, and he used it to print Bibles, and he put them, those, those printing press in the very cells where he and his fellow inmates had been tortured for Christ. Oh. And so on the avenue of the victory of socialism, that's the name of the road, on the avenue of the victory of socialism, <laughs> in a, the cell, using the communist own printing presses, he printed Bibles. Now, how's that to just uh, show uh, the victory of faith over atheism and yeah. uh, the triumph of the gospel throughout Eastern Europe? So that Day in Moscow, they're building 200 churches. 200 churches right now. Now, back when Lenin overthrew the Tsar of Russia, there were 50,000 Orthodox churches in Russia. 50,000 mm. mm. in the Russian Empire. By 1941, at the beginning of Operation Barbarossa, there were not even 200 left. The communists had closed, confiscated, destroyed 49,000 plus churches. They had killed over 180,000 ministers of the gospel. 95,000 shot just in one prison camp, one concentration camp up in the Arctic Circle uh, in uh, Solovetsky Island. Well, um, well, today, there's more than 30,000 Orthodox congregations alone, not counting the thousands of others, Protestant and other congregations. Yes. In fact, right now, 80% of the population of Russia call themselves Christians, baptized Christians in good fellowship That's with their amazing. local churches. 80%. Yes. Now, now you compare church attendance in Russia, which is phenomenal, uh, with the church attendance in Britain, which is about 4%. Yes. And church attendance in Portugal is about percent And in Switzerland is about 12%. And Germany is about 5%. But it, the, the, uh, all over Europe, with the exception of the Czech Republic, which sadly is quite secular, but all the rest of Eastern Europe, what used to be behind Iron Curtain, you could see the gospel flourishing. The largest <laughs> number of Baptist in the world is America. The second largest number of Baptists in the world is Russia, and the third largest group of Baptists in the world is in Romania. Yes. And the largest Baptist theological seminary in Europe, east or west, is in Romania. It's in Arodi, actually. Mm -hmm. I've ministered there. Well, just spectacular growth. But you can see so much uh, symbolism, too. For example, uh, the... Um, the KGB headquarters, the Lubyanka, uh, was uh, a place of terror. And if a person was called to Lubyanka, I mean, a blood ran cold. If you heard that someone you loved had gone to Lubyanka, people were terrified because people disappeared by the thousands. Yeah. Christians were tortured and murdered in Lubyanka. And outside the Lubyanka, uh, uh, which is KGB headquarters, on a big square there, there was a large circle and there was a statue of Dzenski, Felix Dzenski, the um, founder of the communist uh, um, secret police, the Cheka, which became the NKVD, which became the, the KGB. Well, in 1991, the people overthrew the statue and the statue of Tzenski came down and it was removed. And today, if you go to to the Lubyanka Square, which is only about from Red Square, and there's no statue. Statue's gone. But there's something else there. There's a, there's a big stone. It's not just any stone. It's a stone from Solovetsky Island, 
where the first communist concentration camp was built in what used to be an Orthodox monastery, when 5,000 ministers of the gospel were shot dead in that concentration camp in the Arctic Circle, in the White Sea on an island uh, where they have six months night. Uh, it's, it's really remote. Well, they brought a stone from that and they put that stone in that square. <laughs> and what are they pointing to? Daniel chapter 2. The stone that the builders Amen. rejected is worth the chief cornerstone. If anyone falls on that stone, it will it'll be cut to pieces. If that stone falls on someone, it will crush him to dust. The stone, the statue, it crumbled to dust. The wind blew the dust away. The stone grew to be a mountain that filled the whole earth. The vision of Daniel chapter 2. And it, all this symbolism is right there. Biblical symbolism. Christianity has triumphed in Russia and, and Ukraine other parts of Eastern Europe, and atheism is in disgrace. When I was in Eastern Europe um, recently, I asked them, do you know anyone who believes in communism? And they said, no one believes in communism. You know, the only place in the wow. world you'll find people stupid enough to believe in communism is in some universities in the West, oh, yeah. which is true. Yeah, I, I, I am very concerned for our own country, Peter, as you know. Um, there, there are inroads being made in America for communism. And if people only would realize the end point of what they're embracing, they would run from it. It's, it's just so bad. It's so empty. It's so evil. And it's so full of bloodshed. Uh, I don't, I don't, <clears throat> people are just brainwashed, I guess, uh, in uh, embracing such things. Now, we've got maybe three or four minutes left. Um, is there any message that you would want to give your brothers and sisters in the Lord here in America, having been through all that you've seen there in South Africa, and particularly the persecution from the communists? Yes, indeed. I'd say the most important thing is to learn to fear God and to memorize the scripture. And of course, it's important to know the shepherd's psalm, but it's more important to know the shepherd. And uh, knowing the scripture is key. And I must say, Scripture memorization is absolutely phenomenally important, but it's so important to have a vibrant daily relationship with the Lord where we can pray to the Lord, praying the Psalms, communicate to the Lord, hearing from his word and communicating back to him from our hearts and souls. So we need to be people who fear God, who love God, who serve God, who, who love his word. Um, I had a, a wonderful insight given to me by a Romanian Christian, Dr. Paul Negrut. Paul Negrut said to me, Peter, it's easy to tell who a real Christian is. And I'd ask him, how can he tell the fakes? Because he mentioned about the spies in their congregation. Yeah. He said, oh, it's easy to tell a real Christian from a fake. He said, well, please tell me. We have great trouble telling the difference now, <laughs> churches in the West. He said, a real Christian loves God. A real Christian loves to read the Bible. A real Christian loves to pray. And a real Christian hates sin. Mm. Wow. Four points. But what an insight. And then he added, he said, Peter, we don't count our members by who attends the Sunday morning service. We count our members by who attends the midweek Bible study and prayer meeting. <laughs> well, that's, um, that's excellent. Our guest today is Dr. Peter Hammond, and uh, he's the founder and director of uh, Frontline Fellowship in South Africa. And Peter, just a, just a note for our listeners here in um, America— uh, we're heading into fall, particularly in the Northeast, and now the nights are cooler and that sort of thing. What is it like in South Africa right now? 
Oh, actually, it's quite hot and sweltering. Um, uh, we, um, I was getting sunburned in our events. <laughs> um, uh, we, we just had the home education fair uh, and our mission, and we've been out at the Huguenot Monument Museum for Reformation Day and uh, uh, having service out there in the open at this monument for French refugees who fled the persecution in France for religious freedom in South Africa. So that's where we tend to have our Information Day services. So it's it's very hot here, um, and uh, we don't have internal he- uh, heating. We don't have uh, air conditioners. That's that's very unusual in Africa. So we tend to get hot in summer and get cold in winter. Um, and uh, um, but yes, when you have fall, we have spring. Yes. And one last question, really quick. This is human interest. I know that you have a great interest and love for the animals. And what are some of your favorite animals there in Africa? Oh, I love all animals, but I must say the cats are my favorite. Lions, I had a lion as a pet when I was small. Uh, the cheetahs, I get to see some cheetahs at a rehabilitation center uh, nearby here. And uh, they're the fastest animals in the world. We've got penguins. I've adopted a few penguins. Not that we bring them home, but <laughs> rescued them and set them free after they've been rehabilitated and so on. Uh, we've got uh, the African penguins swimming around us, Sean. We sometimes swim uh, in the rocky beaches here with penguins around us, which just shows we're not that far from Antarctica <laughs> in Cape Town. <laughs> and uh, we're at the uttermost ends of the earth, really, over here. A southernmost point of Africa, really. So those are some of my favorite. But I, of course, I love the eagles. And um, uh, my home has got just eight cats. And we've got four cats at a mission house as well. <laughs> and uh, we adopt. And they're all rescues of different sorts. So, yes, I love all animals. But um, I must say, I'm very partial to the cats. <laughs> That's fascinating. Our guest today has been Dr. Peter Hammond. And Peter, just share with us the URL of your website, please, before we go. Yes, certainly. Um, www.frontlinemissionsa.org. SA short for South Africa. So it's frontlinemissionsa.org. And my personal email, peter at frontline.org.za. Peter at frontline.org.za. Um, we'd love to hear from folks. And up recently on uh, Behind Enemy Lines for Christ. Uh, on some of the most extraordinary experiences we had over the last 40 years to mark 40 years behind enemy lines, uh, which summarizes, in fact, I look at about 27 of the 140 missions I've taken, uh, some of the most extraordinary ones and what we experienced in some of the uh, 38 countries I've ministered in and uh, all of the eight wars I've been involved in. So um, that's that's part of it. And you can see some videos and articles on what we've been doing and, and news and updates. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Peter Hammond, my brother in the Lord, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Dan. God bless all on Redeemer Broadcasting. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs> 